Grace and peace to you all. Captain Roger from the Salvation Army Grass Valley Corps. We are taking a break from our journey through the book of Acts today. There is something we should understand before we go any further in our examination of the events and history of the early church. This morning, we're going to look at an aspect of living in the name of God, the idea of being the church together. Now, I saw a comment from someone a few years back. They said, Bible words don't have definitions. They have histories. And I think that is very, very true about the word which describes people who gather in the name of God. That word is ekklesia. And it is a Greek word that has had a great history even before the Christian church used it to describe themselves and then shaped it to describe a deeper idea than it originally had. Um, now, I realize that might sound a little cryptic, but as we discuss how living in the name of God means we must be part of his ecclesia, I think you will come to understand what it is that I mean. It's my hope that you will even take that understanding a step further. We all need to be a conscious part of God's ecclesia. But we're never going to do that if we don't have a good understanding of what the heck that means and what we have to do to make that kind of conscious living part of our lives. Now, before we can get into how we can share an ecclesia today, I should probably explain what it is that word means and how it was used in the past. Although the idea originated in Greece around 650 years before the birth of Christ, it's in Athens, beginning a little before the year 500 BC, that it really became the beginning of the kind of thing we use that word to describe now. Its uh, literal meaning is assembly or, or gathering of the called out. What that first meant was that the boule, an appointed council, uh, the boule prepared agenda items for the ecclesia. At least 40 times each year, a boule would have a trumpet sounded throughout the city of Athens, calling all the, citi all the citizens to uh, assemble to debate and approve or reject the motions which would rule their city. They were thus a called-out assembly, even though not every citizen would choose to attend. Some commentators have taken this to suggest that there's a special calling uh, that happens to a small group of people, but the truth is... Everyone was called, even if only a fraction chose to respond to the call. It's actually good to keep in mind for a lot of reasons, but anyway. There is a great Old Testament reference to the Israelites gathering in a similar assembly, which you will find in Exodus chapter 19, verses 16 and 17. And I'm reading today using the New International Version 2011 edition. If you have a different translation, a different version, that's fine. You should find that the meaning is the same, even if the words are a little bit different. All right. Exodus 19, verses 16 and 17 say, On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, and a thick cloud over the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. So what's happening here is at the sound of the trumpet, the people assembled to hear this proposal that the Lord would be their God if they would be his people. I come back to this moment regularly when we look at, at what it means to live in the name of God, uh, when we look at what it means to be his people. It, it was here with the newly born nation of Israel that the Lord affirmed that his covenant, which he had made with Abraham, would extend to the full body of Abraham's descendants and those who had joined with them. 
It was here that God provided them with instruction and the original means of atonement which would pay for and cover over the stain of sin in their lives. This was the meeting that started them on the path of shalom, the embracing of peace as part of a journey towards healing and wholeness which was supposed to define the people of God. This was done by the presentation of the Torah, the, the law which was to guide them along the way. All right? And the result of this was this original assembly, the Ecclesia Yahweh, the assembled people of God. That's who they were from that point forward anyway. They were a collection of individuals who were joined together by their call to be the people of God, to live together as representatives of his name. In this example, we see that we are meant to to meet and to live out our faith identity together, which is a theme we're going to see come back up as we go along, all right? Although we could definitely spend more time looking at Old Testament references to how God's people were referred to as Ecclesia Yahweh, the called out assembly of God, I'd like to move forward to work out what it means to us now, right? So as you've heard, the original understanding of Ecclesia was that of an assembly. And there are a couple of places in the New Testament where that limited understanding is used as well. One example is Acts chapter 14 at verse 27, where the apostles Paul and Barnabas, they had returned to Antioch after a missionary journey. We're told in that passage, on arriving there, they gathered the church together and reported all that God had done through them and how he had opened a door of faith to the Gentiles. In Greek, this passage says, they synago ho ecclesia, synago ho ecclesia. They brought together the things or people of the assembly. However, did you notice that the English translation given by our uh, NIV editors and just about anyone else, if you're using a different version, it says that they gathered the church together. That's because there's a transition happening during the time that Luke was writing Acts. The word ecclesia was shifting in meaning. Where it had previously referred to any coming together, any single event of people meeting together, it was beginning to take on the sense of something that existed even outside of that event. Right? Think, when you ask someone about their church, how often do they say, well, it's a brick building with vinyl siding up to the bottoms of the main floor windows. There are uh, three floors, each with two classrooms and a larger meeting area. The carpets are real nice, too. Yeah. Never. Never. Well, we might call this a church building. The church is not the building. When you ask someone about their church, they're going to tell you about the people, the pastor, or the activities that their congregation is doing in the community. The same thing is happening to the word Ecclesia, where it used to refer to the, refer to the, uh, the uh, event or the meeting place, it was taking on this meaning of a people who were tied together by a shared idea of faith. The Ecclesia was becoming identified with the people who gathered, not the gathering itself anymore. All right? This is particularly evident in places like uh, 1 Corinthians 15.9. There, Paul says, for I am the least of the apostles and do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the ecclesia of God. Again, the translation is using the word church to translate the idea of the people of the various assemblies rather than any of the specific meeting places. Paul is referring to all Christians as if they are somehow part of this same gathering. 
This new use of the words, it, it's even clearer in some of his letters to the smaller gatherings of believers. For example, in uh, Colossians 4, verses 15 and 16, he writes, uh, Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the Ecclesia in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see that it's also read in the Ecclesia of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. All right. So the Ecclesia then is an overarching principle in the life of the followers of Jesus. Where the pre-Christian people of God had assemblies that helped bring them together as people of one faith, those who devoted themselves to Jesus because they believed him to be the Christ came to think of themselves as always being assembled. And, and that makes sense. After all, we're told in Ephesians 4, verses uh, 4 through 6, that there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. If we, as believers, have been gifted with the same spirit that connects and advises us, our own boule who calls us into a unified body, then we not only have the ability to be the called out people of God, but we must be that gathering. The Holy Spirit brings us into the very name of God and inspires and encourages each of us to live as his representative. If we refuse, if we don't meet together as believers, if we don't seek out ways to become the people God created us to be, then we are living in opposition to God. We need to seek out ways to be the ecclesia that we should be, so that we can enter into that full relationship with Christ that we're meant to have. Now, throughout scripture, there is no illustration that captures the sense of our full potential relationship with God better than that of a marriage. We, we see our communal relationship to God examined and put into a context that most of us can relate to, either because of our own experience or because of our shared experience of seeing marriages around us. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 24, marriage is explained as being when a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Right? But where our carnal minds tend to focus on the idea of joined flesh, the true center of this description and of every passage relating to marriage is the idea of being one. The Hebrew word is ichad, oneness signifying unity or integrity, that the word is used in the sense of being a unified plurality over and over again. It's not about the physical coupling, it's about the everything, right? The Lord our God, the Lord is one. There is one law, there is one ordinance for all, or even in the creation story, when God orders that all the waters be drawn together in one place, that is one. How many waters make up one ocean? And how strange to even try to describe an ocean as being made up of many waters, or, or the law of God as being made up of many laws, or, or God as being made up of multiple parts. None of those really makes any sense, because something that is in perfect unity should never be separated. Now, this is how marriage is actually supposed to work, right? Ichad. In my case, my wife Bridget is one and I am one, but we are one together 
Ichad, one, unified. This is also the idea in our covenant with God. It, it's to make us one. We, as his people, are one. God is one, and then we are one together. As I said, this is a picture given over and over again in Scripture to describe our relationship. Usually it's an unfortunate description because the people of God, as a body, have not always been a faithful spouse. God's agony at our breaking of the oneness, the ichad of our ecclesia, is evident in passages like those from Hosea, where God's people are described as a wife working as a prostitute and having children by strangers. Or passages in Ezekiel which describe us as women who were pledged to be faithful going out to satisfy our lusts with every good-looking man who's nearby. In the Gospel of John, chapter 3, there's a side story about the followers of John the Baptist getting frustrated that so many people are flocking to Jesus. And they go to John to complain about it. But John, this is uh, uh, chapter 3, verse 29, he says, The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and it's now complete. See, the church, the ecclesia, it is the bride and the Messiah is the bridegroom and this union is meant to bring great joy. Paul goes even further. He describes how we're to live out that union in Ephesians chapter 5. And will you find that page in your Bibles... I hope you'll forgive me just a moment's digression, because this passage, Ephesians 5, it is so often separated from its true context that most have even forgotten there is a larger context that it should be read in. Well, I like the way we divide the scriptures into chapters and verses, because I personally approve of anything that makes it easier for us to get into reading and understanding the Word of God. Doing so, that splitting things up, sometimes it leads people to read the separated pieces as separate pieces, when they're not. The word is inseparable. It is ichad. And to take a piece out of it and stand it up against the rest is no more sensible than trying to take one of the waters out of the ocean and saying that it's somehow stronger for having done so. Right? So if you, like me, are reading Ephesians 5 in the New International Version, you'll see that not only do they have chapters and verses, they also have section headings. And the section headings these are an intrusion into scripture, frankly. They reflect one editor or committee's summary of what they believe the coming verses to be about. And they often fail to help you understand the fuller context because that's not their purpose. Their purpose is just to give you a reason to read the next passage, which is good, but it creates a separation where there should be no separation. Ephesians chapter 5 is just a part of the whole and both halves of chapter 5 are describing the same thing. So putting a section header above verse 21 is at best an honest mistake. And some translations make it even worse. They put the divider, that section header, they put it below verse 21 and then ignore the injunction given there when they move on. Right? And sadly, even after all saying all that, I'm going to do my own abbreviation of this chapter because I wish to focus on Paul's illustration of how we're supposed to live in Ecclesia. But let me at least connect up the beginning of the chapter on my way down to verse 21 where we're going to start. All right. Paul has been discussing throughout this letter to the Ephesians, he has been discussing the importance of unity and maturity in the church. And as we reach what we call chapter 5, he is beginning to wrap up with how we are to maintain that unity. 
So I'm going to start in Ephesians 5 at verse 1. Paul writes, uh, Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love just as Christ Jesus loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. He then goes on to say how important it is to live out what it means to be the people of God. And then we get to verse 17. He says, Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. He begins to give a few examples, and then he hits on this illustration of marriage, which we need to begin in verse 21 to have a full understanding of. Ephesians 5, starting at verse 21. If there's any section headers above or below verse 21, you just scribble those suckers out. It'll be fine. Ephesians 5, 21. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. I'm going to stop for just a sec. Remember what's going on. Paul is explaining how to maintain our ecclesia, our unified assembly of Christian believers in unity and maturity. To do so, he says, we must submit to one another. Not because it's easy, but out of reverence for Christ. And then he gives the example of a wife submitting to her husband. Just like you would submit to the Lord, he says, submit to your husband. But even though this description is drawn from human marriage, remember that it is describing our unity as a church body, which is part of our unity with God, right? In descriptions about the church, who is the wife? The church is. In fact, the word ecclesia is a feminine word. But don't worry, men. Paul makes sure that even those of us with limited imaginations can find our own understanding by giving us a more masculine example to go with here also. Verse uh, 25. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. So the analogy here is greater than that of just husband and wife. In effect, Paul is declaring that the church, which is again translation of the word ecclesia, the church is to be treated as a spouse with love, as a husband is to love his wife. We are to treat our gathering together as Christ followers as a husband is to treat a wife because we want to present our called out assembly as something that is set apart for God, something holy and healthy and cared for. All right. We are part of the church. We are one with it. And so we are to love it and care for it as if it were us. Are we all tracking here? By treating our church by which is meant the people of God in all their forms and ways, 
by treating our church, we want ourselves... Let me, let me start this over. By treating our church, our church, keep in mind, that is the people of God in all their forms and ways, by treating our church as we want ourselves to be treated in the most intimate of relationships, we live out our relationship with God. All right? How we treat our church, our gathering, our collection, our believers as a whole, not just one group here and there, how we treat that whole piece is how we are treating our relationship with God. Paul ends his example by quoting from Genesis. This is, uh, I'm reading Ephesians 5, uh, verses 31 through 33. Paul says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. That, that's an equality thing there, an equalizing. You, you must love your wife. She must respect you. It's the same. He's saying the same thing. You love her. She loves you. You care about her. She cares about you. You care about Christ. Christ cares about you. If you want to apply this passage to your own marriage, you go right ahead. But remember, there is a mutual respect and love required along with a mutual submission, as verse 21 insists. There's no superiority. There's no headship described in this relationship. Instead, what's being described is oneness. Ichad. Let me see if I can wrap this up simply. To live in the name of God, we must be part of his ecclesia, his gathering. We are joined together by the Holy Spirit and commanded to meet together. As we're taught in Hebrews 10 verses 24 and 25, uh, the author writes, let us now consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. So see, we're supposed to meet together, encourage one another, submit to one another, love one another, and present our church, both the small gathering here and as a global body of believers, as a radiant and set-apart ecclesia. I hope you are getting this. I hope you're seeing the connection. I hope you're seeing how... The church doesn't refer to one little group here or there. One little group here or there may have nothing to do with the larger body, quite frankly. A lot of people, the way they uh, live in their own little bubbles, seems set apart from the group that's supposed to be set apart for God. Some people set themselves apart from the church altogether and say, well, I'm just going to have my own little spiritual thing over here and not be part of everything else. Well, you know what? The it's not what scripture tells us. Scripture tells us we're all in this together, right? Yeah. I think that's enough to chew on for one day, don't you? Once we have a solid understanding of what it means to be in ecclesia, to be ichad together, to be ichad with God, once we grasp even part of that, 
it should lead us to crave more of it, frankly, because it's wonderful or wonderful. Yeah, sorry. I, that's it. I didn't even write that in my notes because I knew that was terrible. But I think you get the point. We should be one. We should represent the one that we follow, right? Well, frankly, we do represent the one we claim to follow, whether we are representing him or not. So we should do our best to represent Christ in all of the love and oneness and mutual submission that he tells us to live in, right? Yeah. Hey, wherever you are this week, Wherever you are in life, remember, you have nothing to fear. Why? Because God is already there. Wherever you go, God is already there. So just go with God. Grace and peace to each and every one of you in this coming week. God bless you.